You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Um, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this fourth lecture in our, 19, uh, sorry, our 2019 and 2020 lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968-1999. The Defining Moments series encompasses 16 lectures over two years that will take a deeper look at critical moments that have shaped Australian art since 1968, analysing selected game changes in Australian art by addressing key contemporary art exhibitions and projects staged over the last three decades of the 20th century, and reflecting on the ways these exhibitions have shaped art history and contemporary Australian culture more broadly. To begin with, I would sincerely like to acknowledge the Bunwarang, traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who might join us this evening. The Defining Moments Australian Exhibition Histories series wouldn't be possible without the support of a number of partners, and I'd like to extend our heartfelt thanks to presenting partner, the bespoke travel consultants Abercrombie and Kent, who have been generous long-time supporters of ACCA and our lecture series, and we're especially grateful for their ongoing commitment and support. We're also very excited to welcome the Centre of Visual Arts, or COVA, at the University of Melbourne as research partner for the series. COVA was established only last year in 2018 to facilitate innovative research and collaborative projects with an ambition to become a leader in the field of visual art research within the Asia-Pacific region. And we um, appreciate and look forward to working with COVA over the next two years and beyond. We're also very grateful to our media partners, Art Guide Australia, The Saturday Paper and Triple R. And of course, special thanks to our event partners, the City of Melbourne, CAPI, and we also hope you are enjoying your complimentary cocktail from the Melbourne Gin Company this evening. Um, I think it's known as the Mulled G&T, um, with um, classic dry gin, commissary Jamaican sorrel and cappy dry tonic. Um, now that that's sort of sorted, that important historical information, um, we are very excited to present the fourth uh, lecture in the Defining Moment series. Uh, Inhibit Dress Multimedia Interference by Peter Kennedy with Sue Kramer as respondent. In 1970, uh, Sydney-based artists Peter Kennedy, Mark Parr, Tim Johnson and others co-founded Inhibit Dress, one of Australia's first artist-run initiatives. While Inhibit Dress was short-lived, operating for three years through to 1972, it was instrumental and influential in inaugurating new forms of artistic practice and exposing the Australian public to early experimental performance, movement, light, sound and video art. Recognised as a key moment in the development of conceptual art and what also became known as post-object art in Australia, Inhibidress attracted the attention of international critics, including Lucy Lippard, who documented various Inhibidress activities and projects in her landmark book, Six Years, The Dematerialisation of the Art Object, from 68 to 72, as well as influential local critics and theorists such as Donald Brooke and Terry Smith. Inhibidress was also the subject of a retrospective exhibition and publication curated and edited by Sue Kramer for the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane in 1989, and we're delighted to welcome Sue as respondent this evening. In tonight's lecture, Peter will reflect on the significance of Inhibidress, with particular reference to a couple of specific exhibitions, including But the Fierce Black Man from 1971, which involved live, real-time, amplified performance and audience participation. So 
be prepared, um, some of which we will hear and experience this evening. So I think we're in for somewhat of a multimedia treat of analogue sound and vision going by this afternoon's sound check, um, and which I think will take us back to another time. Um, an exceptional, influential, experimental artist since the 1960s, Peter Kennedy is one of the first artists to work with video and neon light and other experimental art forms in Australia and is rightly regarded as one of the most significant artists of his generation. He's been an innovator over five decades, from early experimental conceptual and performance works, and works which engage with community contexts, through to art which deeply reflects on some of the most profound social, cultural and political issues of our time from both personal and public perspectives. Peter's work is held in the collections of significant museums in Australia and internationally, including the NGA, the National Gallery of Victoria, the Art Gallery of New South Wales, as well as the Centre Georges Pompidou, Tate Gallery, ICA London, and National Gallery of Canada. And major surveys of Peter's work have been held at Hardy Museum of Modern Art in 1993, the Ian Potter Museum of Art in 2002, and Brisbane's Institute of Modern Art in 2011. Following Peter's lecture, in response, we are delighted to welcome Sue Kramer, who, as I mentioned, was the curator of Inhibidress 1970-72 at the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane in 1989. Sue will consider the legacy of Inhibidress, as well as the politics and the implications of restaging historical exhibitions and working with the history of conceptual and performance art, subjects which are equally relevant to the format of ACCA's lecture series as well. Sue Kramer is curator at Hardy Museum of Modern Art in Melbourne, She's worked since the early 1980s as a curator and writer on contemporary art, including as director of the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane, curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney, and as art critic for the Age newspaper. Sue has created many landmark exhibitions, including the wonderful Janet Birchall and Jennifer McHamley exhibition, Temptation to Coexist, which is currently at Hardy, and I'd recommend all of you that haven't been out to, to go and see what is really an outstanding exhibition covering 35 plus years of the artist's practice. Peter will be speaking for about tonight for about 40 minutes, followed by a shorter response from Sue. Then there'll be time for discussion between both Peter and Sue, after which we'll have time also for questions from the audience. And my colleague, Adrienne Haywood, Curator of Public Programs here at ACCA, will be on hand with a microphone to welcome questions. So without further ado, will you please welcome, um, join me in welcoming our guest speaker this evening, Peter Kennedy. Good evening, what a great uh, gathering. Thank you all for coming. The uh, topic of the lecture tonight is defining moments, multimedia interference. This is, multi, this is interference as nemesis. One of my early experiences. I was 13 years old when television came to Brisbane. Interference subsequently became a frequent topic of conversation. How's your reception? <laughs> Not too good. Interference is really bad. Especially when there's something you want to watch. 
This could mean that the picture quality was terrible and the sound was just noise. Interference would bring on a frenzy of knob turning. First the channels, all equally bad. Channel, channels two, seven and nine. Then the horizontal hold. <laughs> then the vertical hold. There being no signs of improvement, all effort shifted to the contrast knob. <laughs> the repairman comes and goes through the same routine, but only with the horizontal and vertical knobs. He then crawls behind the set. Later, having climbed down from the roof, where he's played with the aerial, his comments take a speculative turn. Your house is a bit too low. There's that hill. And that place over the road, pretty big aerial. Could be it's interfering with the signal and so on. I've taken the title's keywords, defining moments, multimedia interference, as a guide to the content of this lecture in which there are a selection of images as well as sound segments. Sound being an element in my work that has played a part in defining the moment. This will be followed by a discussion of inhibitress. The sequence of projected images is as follows. To begin, there are installation shots of my two neon exhibitions at Gallery A in Sydney in 1970 and 71. This was the first time neon was exhibited as art in Australia. The 1970 exhibition was simply titled Neon Light Installations. Probably the first on the record use of the term installation in this country. Then follows a passing reference to But the Fierce Black Man before shifting to the question of where such a work as But the Fierce Black Man came from. Numerous historic publications and several selected audio recordings contribute to this backstory. As representative of a defining moment, But the Fierce Black Man obscures my other work, particularly other early 1970s-related, sound-related pieces. In any event, it is those very same sound-related pieces to which a notion of interference as conceptual idea, or indeed as virtual material, is intrinsic. By way of redress, I have included in this presentation examples that demonstrate the way in which it has figured as an expressive option, then and now. A detailed description and explanation of But the Fierce Black Man as it was exhibited at Inhibitress in 1971 will, include, will conclude the audio-visual part of this presentation. There's two things I want to mention. 
The audience should, should know that a number of works shown here tonight have been exhibited elsewhere in Australia and overseas. Well, you already know that uh, Max has already covered that, so I'm repeating what Max has said. Uh, but a number of them have not been shown in Melbourne. The next thing I want to say is that I will use many names in reference to various artworks and influences, and most of those, or some at least, will be unknown to some members of the audience. My apologies in advance. Time on this occasion does not allow for explanatory interludes. Floor piece number two, 1970. As exhibited at the Institute of Modern Art Brisbane in 2011. This work that was shown at Gallery A in Sydney in 1970 was remade for the exhibition at the IMA. Originally, it was shown at Gallery A in a joint exhibition with Tim Johnson. And this was about the time of the first meeting to establish Inhibitress Artist-Run Gallery, which was the first artist cooperative gallery and probably based on the Sydney Filmmakers Co-op. On the left, diagonal wall piece from Neon Light Installations, 1970. And on the right, horizontal wall piece, again from the same exhibition, 1970. And in the foreground on the floor, X, two Vs and three Is, also from 1970. I was working at Claude Neon as a designer of neon and plastic signs at this time and sometime around mid-1969, I set about designing the work for this exhibition. The exhibition opened in early February 1970, at the very beginning of a new decade. Floor piece number one from Neon Light Installations 1970. Floor piece number one, again, and this time we see it in juxtaposition with neon light, uh, with luminal sequences of 1971. That's the image on the left, and on the right we have again X, two Vs and three Is from 1970, and uh, a, one element from a number of elements that um, was incorporated into luminal sequences um, on the right of that um, frame. Both periods of work, that is the work done in 1970 and again the um, luminal sequences work done in 1971 were combined for the purpose of this exhibition in Brisbane at the IMA. 
It was with luminal sequences that I first became engaged with the phenomenon of interference, both, as I said before, as a concept and as a material that could be incorporated into an artwork. Put simply in this context, interference was the conversion of a negative into a positive. Luminal sequences, again, in another space within the IMA complex. This work, unlike neon light installations in 1970, uh, incorporated timers which produced the interference component of the exhibition. On the left in this frame, you see a slide projection which ran throughout the whole exhibition. It was of um, images taken during the course of the exhibition of people at the exhibition. There is one problem with this photograph, and that is that the photographer, I was absent when the photographs were taken, had a will to coherence which resulted in pictures that record the installation in repose. That is, all the illuminated elements are on at the same time. This was not the case most of the time. The horizontal and vertical neon tubes were connected to timers that operated at different intervals. Lights would go on and off for varying periods and in different locations throughout the space. The visual experience was a gentle one. The changes that occurred were subtle transitions, the opposite, in fact, to the often frenetic flashing effects of neon advertising. Some different angles of the same exhibition, above and below on the left, and on the right, we have some examples of the 1970 luminal uh, neon light installation works. The bottom image on the right is a detail of the piece called horizontal wall piece, which we see above on the right. But, <clears throat> excuse me. but the fierce black man at Inhibitress in 1971. This is a collection of contact prints or sheets. As if the two neon exhibitions at Gallery A were not radical enough, but the fierce black man was even more so. Nothing like it had been seen before. Pretty much the entire work was devoted to interference phenomena of one sort or another. I'll return to But the Fierce Black Man a little while later. Given the work's difference, the question arises as to where it came from. The sources are numerous, and to understand it in terms of synthesis is a good way to approach it.
Reading art magazines and certain books was immensely influential at the time. From these, I drew not only inspiration and ideas, but more importantly, the competence to make work and exhibitions not previously seen in Australia. This process of enlightenment began when I moved from Brisbane in 1965, at the age of 19, to Sydney to, ascend, to attend East Sydney Technical College, Sydney's one and only art school. This is a moment when I discovered art magazines and the world of the avant-garde. Robert Hughes wrote of the shock of the new. For me, it was exhilaration. Seeing the work of Robert Rauschenberg and John Cage, for example, set my world on fire. As a matter of interest, the bottom center image is a portrait of the German artist Joseph Beuys. Some texture. Art Now, revised edition 1960, one of my earliest art books purchased as a 15-year-old. A British publication, this line from the preface sets the tone. Dissonance and dissonance and conflict have become essential elements in our aesthetic experience. I took this on reading it a few days ago as a reflection of Britain's emotional state as a nation post-World War II. In 1967, I was given a copy of TDR, the Tulane Drama Review, the Special Happenings Issue. Contributors to this publication include Alan Capro, Robert Morris, John Cage, Fluxus, particularly George Matunas, Claes Oldenburg, Anne Halperin, and Yvonne Rayner, and Lamont Young. Now, one of the other things I've done looking back at these books to refresh my memory was to note how many women artists were included in each of these publications. With Art Now, there was a total of 136 artists with approximately 10 women. I say approximately because I couldn't work out the gender of some of the names. With the Tulane Drama Review, the TDR, there were 23 contributors and three women. Here's a passage from Lamont Young's lecture, 1960, that, captured, that captured my imagination at the time. Actually, I think I should have a different voice. Could I ask a member of the audience to volunteer to read it? Oh, thank you. So kind. Surprise, surprise. <clears throat> when I sent Compositions 1960, numbers two to five, to some of my friends, I received different comments from all of them concerning which ones they liked or disliked, with one exception. 
Almost all of them wrote back to me saying they liked number five, which consists, quite simply, of turning a butterfly or any number of butterflies loose in the auditorium. Diane agreed that it was a very lovely piece and said it would seem almost impossible for anyone not to like it. At any rate, I had hoped to perform either Composition 1960-2, which consists of building a fire in front of the audience, or Composition 1960-5, the butterfly piece, on whatever program came up next. Thus, when the time arrived to do another noon concert of contemporary music at the University in Berkeley, I told a friend who was communicating with the director of the noon concerts that I would like to do either composition 1960-2 or hash 5. The next day he phoned and said he had asked the director. The director had said that both pieces were absolutely out of the question. I was shocked. I could easily understand anyone's concern for a fire in the auditorium, but what could be wrong with a butterfly? Well, compositions 1960 numbers two and five were banned from the auditorium, and we performed composition 1960-4 instead. Sometime afterward, Diane received a letter from Susan, who was visiting in New York. At the end of the letter, she wrote, quote, I saw a boy in the park today running quite terrified from a small yellow butterfly. On the left, the new sculpture published in Germany in 1967. Environments were soon to become known as installations. When attitudes become form, live in your head. This is the exhibition catalogue from the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Art in London, in 1969. Referring to the artists, Harold Zaman writes this. Of, of some common characteristics, the obvious, there are the obvious opposition to form the pronouncement that certain objects are art, although they have not previously been identified as such, the shift away from the result towards the artistic process, the use of mundane materials. In Australia, as Max pointed out earlier, these characteristics were to become known as post-object art. Zaman continues, for some of these artists, the desire to create does not spring purely from visual experience. In the new sculpture, there were 430 artists 
of whom 28 were women, and in When Attitudes Become Form, Live in Your Head, there were 68 artists, three of whom were women. Minimal Art, a Critical Anthology, edited by Gregory Batcock, published in 1968. In this publication, there were 94 artists, 10 of whom were women. The book itself represents the minimalist moment as it was happening. Minimal Art was the official avant-garde of the mid to late 1960s. It had its attractions, its itness or thingness, its assertion of its own materiality, its unequivocal objectness. All of this was new at the time. Minimalism's interaction with the space in which it was displayed, its dialogue with the architecture of the space, the ready take-up of commercial and industrial products were contributing attractions. There was a branch of minimalism that was referred to as serialism. This involved the application of logic in the deployment of discrete parts within a predetermined system. Sol LeWitt, Carl Andre, and Dan Flavin are today the most recognized exponents. Serialism had its place in music too, only much earlier. While serialism was being earnestly discussed in the art world, it was being rejected and replaced in the music world. Those, exp exp those exponents of serialism in music, the objects of rejection, were, for example, Schoenberg, Boulez, Webern, Berg, and Nono, for example. The international music avant-garde as it existed in the mid to late 1960s was a source of intense experimentation. Composers worked to replace serialism with auditory experience. Compositions were to be received as sound rather than music and were not designed to be listened to in the way serial music or its precursors required. In that sense, avant-garde or post-serial compositions might have sound but were devoid of musical content. John Cage's silent sonata, 4 minutes 33 seconds, performed at Black Mountain College in the early to mid-1950s is a classic example. So the question for me was how, in a gallery context, might I integrate sound with a new kind of visual imagery? I kept listening. 
In early 1970, I joined David Ahern's AZ Music Group. Teletopa, Ahern's group of electronic musicians and a sub-branch of AZ Music and AZ's lay musicians, of whom I was one, based their operations at Inhibidress following the establishment of the gallery later in 1970. I kept listening to music such as Prepared piano, before we play the record, is an ordinary piano into which cage inserted screws, bolts, erasers, wooden objects, plastic, etc., into or onto the strings of the piano. Intervention? Certainly. Interference? For many, yes. Prepared piano. Two minutes. Notice that there are some black marks on the record sleeve. I'll come to an explanation as to the purpose of those uh, in a few slides' time, in case you're wondering.
Luciano Berrio, Visage, 1961. For magnetic tape, based on the voice of Kathy Barbarian and electronic sounds. According to Berrio, Visage is a radio program work, a soundtrack for a drama that is never written. It is not really for the concert hall, but rather any medium that reproduces words. Visage can be heard as a metaphor of vocal behavior. It is a discourse at the onomatopoeic level. It does not present meaningful speech, but the semblance of it. Only a single word is pronounced and repeated. The word parole, making words in Italian, meaning words in Italian. We'll play one minute and 53 seconds, if we're lucky. It's going to rain. Steve Reich, 1965. It's going to rain was composed in San Francisco in January 1965. The voice belongs to a young black Pentecostal preacher, Brother Walter. Recorded by Reich one Sunday afternoon in Union Square in downtown San Francisco. 
This piece comes in two parts. You will hear the beginning and the end of part one. Then we'll follow part two. Again, you will hear the beginning and then the end. These samples will give some idea of how the work progresses.
The Bible tell me they knocked up on the door until the skin came off their hands. Woo! My Lord, my Lord. I said until the skin came off their hands. They cried. I could just hear them cry now. I could hear them say, oh, Noah, would you just open the door? But Noah couldn't open the door. It had been sealed by the hand of God. Oh, it God, God. It had been sealed. Couldn't open the door. They said, oh, Noah. They cried. You just open the door. Couldn't open the door. They showed up. Hallelujah. Oh, it God, God. It had been sealed. Couldn't open the door. They said, oh, Noah. They cried. You just open the door. Couldn't open the door. Showing up, hallelujah, how it is God, God, heaven is sealed, couldn't open the door, there are no, they cry, just open the door, couldn't open the door, they're showing up, hallelujah, how it is God, God, heaven is sealed, couldn't open the door, there are no, they cry, just open the door, couldn't open the door, they're showing up, hallelujah, how it is God, God, heaven is sealed, couldn't open the door, there are no, they cry, just open the door, couldn't open the door. About 40 seconds at the end. of inputs, the publications, the experimental music, came my early work. This is my work, prepared record, 1970-71. Three sheets, a quarto sheet with instructions, a diagrammatic drawing on tracing paper, and the record, record album cover, the template for making incisions, a template with incisions, I beg your pardon, um, as per the diagram for scratching the record. The instructions go as follows. Select a 12-inch LP disc, preferably a recording of classical music. Prepare the surface of the recording as indicated on the diagram by carefully, lightly, applying scratches using a suitably sharp instrument. A single disc may be listened to in private. For a public performance, a minimum of four records, they can be different records, and four record players are required. The method by which the recordings can be synchronized should be determined before any public performance. On the left, contact prints for a work titled Prepared Tree, 
1970. This work was done, performed at Benighton Gallery in 1971 in Sydney as part of the Harold Zaman John Caldor exhibition. I want to leave a beautiful well done child here, I think was the title. This is the instructions for prepared tree. Listen to the sound of a tree as it is blown by the wind or gently moved by a breeze. Prepare the tree in ways that will change its sound. This action will redefine the oral nature of the tree as well as its relationship to the sounds in its immediate environment. Use rope to tie branches together or inhibit the tree's natural movement by fastening branches to the ground or to other objects or insert various materials taking care that whatever is used does not produce its own particular sounds. Listen for changes in sound. If successful, take into account the tree's visual appearance. If both oral and visual aspects of the tree's preparation are in harmony, the work can, can be considered a success. If not, reconsider. Note, the tree is to remain in a state of preparation only for as long as the performance or performance recording requires. The work on the right. Prepared tree number two. I'll read my instructions. Select an appropriate tree within easy distance of power points. Install six TV sets, portable with telescopic aerials, in well-considered positions throughout the tree. Use only those channels that are sensitive to the greatest amount of interference. Prepare those parts of the tree in close proximity to the individual TV sets using any material that is likely to cause interference on con contacting the TV aerials, for example, fine wire, small magnets, metal, etc. This material should be so placed so as to allow contact with the TV aerials through the natural movement of the tree. As the tree's movement is subject to wind conditions, this allows for maximum variation of interference activity. For example, in the strong wind, the turbulent movement of the tree would bring the interference materials into frequent contact with the aerials. In a light wind, there would be less interference of the kind intended. The volume of all TVs must be maximum. The work performance should be seen and heard both during the day and also at night. On the left, a work titled Fugue from 1971 and reinterpreted in 2015, which is the display that uh, you can see here. That was an 11-channel 11, 11 digital video with 11 wireless speakers. It was shown at Milani Gallery in Brisbane in 2015. These video works were originally discrete pieces and were recorded at inhibitress on quarter-inch Akai black and white magnetic video recording tape in June, July 1971. Fugue is a reinterpretation of the 1971 videos after they were digitally remastered. On each screen, there was a different performance. Here, sound, important in the originals, is prioritised by locating the speakers at ear level while the linear arrangement of monitors are installed above the viewer's eyeline. The sounds, mundane, prosaic, are in constant state of flux and randomness. 
No single instant is repeated, which means the work is perpetually new. At every instant, it is original. At right, a detail of one of the works that you can see on the left, the installation image. It's third from the right in the installation photograph. The work is called Parrot. I've selected it as an example of another way, or yet another way, of how I involved or incorporated interference into the work process and the content of the work and indeed the aesthetic of the work. The word parrot operates here as a verb, to parrot or repeat. The object to reach beyond meaning. A seated performer repeats the word parrot at varying intervals but only at the precise moment when an actor passes between the performer and the camera microphone. At such moments, the actor obscures the view of the performer saying the word while simultaneously affecting the clarity of what is heard. With the word parrot now lacking any visual connection to its source and the sound of it effectively degraded to a noise, parrot's aesthetic content rests with the process by which it has been made. Body Concert, Part 2 Extended, 1971 to 2015, single channel digital video and sound piece, running for 6 minutes and 28 seconds. This is a reinterpretation of the original 1971 single channel video work. Two performers move a small contact microphone between their bodies using only the pressure of their embrace to move it. The sounds, are heard, the sounds that are heard appear at odds with the movement. As the piece progresses, so does the sound, evolving from digitally modified sounds at the beginning to a listenable musicality at the end. This will run for just one minute. I'll push the button. Do I push the button? Yep. No, I pushed the wrong button. Sound?
Music of the Spheres on the left, 1971, and Silent Manifesto, 1971, on the right. Music of the Spheres. It was Pythagoras who came up with the idea known as the music of the spheres. It had to do with musical sounds made by the heavenly spheres as they turned. He thought this was because the distance between heavenly bodies matched the length of strings that sound the different musical notes. Johannes Kepler, thinking Pythagoras might be onto something, had a different take on it. He wanted to relate the speeds of the planets to musical intervals. And finding this not to be true, he stumbled into the sublime instead. Silent Manifesto on the right. A gesture from the conceptual zone. Two speakers are directed at the street. A microphone is connected to an amplifier set at full volume. However, there can be no sound. The microphone is bound in layers of cloth and the speakers are mute. There are conceivably two explanations for the gesture. An acknowledgement of John Cage's famous lecture on nothing, the opening line of which is, I've got nothing to say and I am saying it. Or, alternatively, it signifies that in cultural circles there is a sense that the manifesto's, manifesto's history of defiance has played out and the avant-garde's fate is one of cultural assimilation. Snare, 1972. Snare drum... Tom, three speakers, quarter-inch magnetic recording tape, reel-to-reel tape deck, amplifier, microphone and stand, speaker box, drumsticks, three photographs, still frame chair with speaker attached. First shown at Inhibidress in 1972 in the exhibition Transart One Idea Demonstrations, Peter Kennedy, Mike Parr. Modern arts, avant-gardist attack on bourgeois values and culture was always destructive in its intent. History, however, shows that this aim often ends up being assimilated and absorbed by that same dominant culture. Snare plays with this tradition of artistic intention and cultural assimilation. Aggressively anti-bourgeois in its conception, Snare challenges the reality of assimilation, not through any disagreeable visual presence, but rather by sonic assault, in recognition of the futility of alienating a contemporary audience by visual means alone. Passive and benign to begin with, the trap, it then unleashes a barrage of discordant, discordant drum sounds and feedback this then is Snare's repudiation of bourgeois culture's propensity for assimilation. Snare remains in the artist's collection. 
Are we running out of time? Yeah? We're, uh, uh, it's okay? <laughs> I think I might have to drop a few pieces out. Yeah. Um, no. Welteislehrer. German for, translated literally, world ice learning or world ice theory, 1972. First shown as inhibitress in 1972 in the same exhibition I mentioned, Idea Demonstrations, this work engages with the opposite of truth, the time when Germany was run by Nazis. For the Nazis, the theory of relativity was a problem because its author, Einstein, was a Jew. Their answer was to come up with an alternative theory and an institution to proclaim it, the Academy for Welteislehrer. It was to be an institution run by Werner Heisenberg, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, famous for the principle of uncertainty. The Academy's purpose? to promulgate the Nazi conviction that the stars are made of ice. In the artwork, Veltis, in the artwork, Veltislehrer's sound component is a recording of a man's voice telling the above story in German. At the end of the story, he stops speaking, but remains a presence behind the microphone. The listener hears street sounds, occasional voices, including a child's, perhaps a car horn or siren, and maybe there is a dog barking. The sounds outside are mundane. The owner of the voice is still present. The listener hears him swallow. I'm going to go really fast now. Chorus from the Breath of Wings, exhibited in 1993 at Heidi Museum of Art. These are three works in that exhibition. All three use sound. On the left, we have Siren the North after Mayakovsky. In the middle, The Golden Light of the East. And on the right, Icarian Dreamer. These works were recently exhibited in Brisbane. Icarian Dreamer the image on the right, includes spoken words that, that have ostensibly fallen from the book mounted on the steel pole and are now scattered at the base where the words can be heard coming from small speakers. Like fugue that we saw before, these sounds operating at a low volume interact randomly and so provide background sound to the physical objects in the space. from the same exhibition, the presence of the past. Marching drums with a marching snare, nine and five inch black and white monitors, two loudspeakers, recorded marching sound and video loops of World War II German army marching in the hand of Joseph Stalin, waving wing-like as a reference to Walter Benjamin's Angel of History. The Photograph Story, 2004-2016, three or six channel digital video and sound, each part six minutes and 20 seconds. In the year 2000, 
A 12-year-old boy in Gaza is shot. News footage, photographs and the report that follows suggest the boy is dead. Over time, sustained questioning undermines the veracity of this documentary account. The truth is made less certain. In 2003, those bullets fired three years earlier enter in a different way the lives of a father and his eight-year-old son who view six sequential photographs of this event, now controversial, published in a newspaper and over which the small boy graffitis his own unknowable response. Me, da, not, no, so, shit, e. There are six photographs, as I mentioned. Each has its own voice and each tells a different part of the story. Here's an excerpt from part two, Da. And later, in the days following, in the weeks, months and years thereafter, different versions of the boy's death circulate, casting shadows of doubt across the atomized stains from which we are constituted. The implication, be implication being that as a visual record, we lack the veracity to rebut the arguments of those who deny that the boy was shot dead because, in light of contradictory accounts, the truth of what we represent gets messed up. So swamped is it by equivocation, distortion and obfuscation, proffered during interrogation, which itself may or may not be a genuine attempt to seek the truth. This passage is accompanied by a visual raster that you can see on the left of the frame there and white noise. So from this work completed in 2016 we return to But the Fierce Black Man exhibited in 1971. But the Fierce Black Man ran at an dress from March the 8th to March 28, 1971. Inhibidress was on the second floor of a building in Charles Street, Woolloomooloo. Neither the building nor the street exist. Admission was 30 cents, gallery hours 5.30 to 9pm weeknights, 10am to 6pm Saturday and Sunday. As described in the exhibition notice, but the fierce black man comprised a two-channel recording but the fierce black man, raster and white noise from television set, random human interference, namely audience participants, taxi radios and ambient street noise, and my performance of speaking the phrase but the fierce black man at 30-minute intervals. This, I think, was the first sound installation to be exhibited as art in a gallery, and according to Stephen Jones, who's written a lot on video art in Australia, this was probably also the first occasion in which a television set had been incorporated into a visual art exhibition. The gallery, previously an industrial space, was approximately 70 feet in length, which is about 22 metres, and 25 feet wide, which is about 7.6 metres. By today's standards, quite small, but by the standards of the day, it was actually quite large. Many galleries were converted terrace houses with small rooms. 
The equipment used in the exhibition included six speakers positioned at equal intervals and running the full length down the centre of the space, a portable television set with flexible rabbit ears aerials, one oscillating freestanding industrial electric fan, a tape deck for playing But the Fierce Black Man tape loop, two amplifiers, two microphones, and a sign inviting audience participation. The space was much darker than seen in these photographs. In the exhibition, the only light was from the flicker of the TV screen. The light in these pictures was simply there for photographic purposes. These are some images of my performances, repeating the phrase, initially in sync with the loop, but owing to a range of physical constraints, pressures or duration, synchronous vocal expression is gradually or quickly lost. At this point, we turn the projector off, and this is a sound recording of that environment that I made in 1971 to give you some sense of the sonic aspect of the work, which was the, the main purpose of the exhibition.
What was the critical response? Donald Brooke, writing for the Sydney Morning Herald, said this. One wouldn't know how well Peter Kennedy has made his thing, but the fierce black man, for the very good reason that it is quite unclear what sort of thing he has made. It's very weird and powerful, and for whoever would like to know what's really happening in art now, the answer is, in a way, simple. This is. Terry Smith, writing in the review at the end of 1971, in a survey of exhibitions for the year, says this. More daringly than most other Australian artists, Kennedy grapples directly with the bare bones of sound and space. If it is true that stripping down is one of the major impulses in 20th century art, then Kennedy here shows a way of extending it beyond what was thought to be the terminus, minimal art. That review appeared in Good Exhibitions Were Rare in 1971, December the 18th to the 24th of that year. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. What a fascinating account. Um, oral, visual, textural, um, wonderful to hear. Multimedia. Multimedia, yes. Um, yes, I think um, it's very interesting to reflect. I'm just keeping an eye on, my, on the time there. Very interesting to reflect on what makes a work like but the fierce black men resonate down the ages. And from 1971 to 2019, and I think something about that ritualistic uh, rhythm that we just heard then uh, says a lot about it, the um, pulsating, um, primal, anxious sound that also picked up on a lot of those other um, sound pieces by Steve Reich and others that you were um, riffing off at the time. And it was such an interesting time, the 1970s, I think, when um, and we look back to it, that, that there was so much interconnection between contemporary art, um, music, theatre and dance. There was so much cross-fertilisation of ideas that made it such a very exciting time. And that's something that I don't, I don't know if we have that now, but it was very... I wasn't, didn't live through the 70s as, a, um, as an art person. Um, I, I lived through the 80s. The 80s were my period. And... Um, and it was in the 80s that I decided um, to make curate the exhibition 
in Hebridus, and I really did it because I wanted to, uh, I was very interested in the history of conceptual art, and I think that in the 80s we were very aware that the legacy of conceptual art was in danger of being lost, and that there was a sense that conceptual art by some was being perceived as a failed experiment and that those who had tested the bounds of art and dared to challenge the primacy of painting and sculpture and who had brought in new media, different ways of operating within galleries, different ways of setting up exhibitions, um, independent activity by artists, uh, that it had all somewhat fallen apart when the 80s came. This was the, a perception that um, in the 80s, with the rise of the market, the return of expressionist painting, sculpture, there was a sense that perhaps um, what had been gained in the 70s was in danger of being lost. And I was also inspired by my predecessor as director at the Institute of Modern Art, Peter Cripps, who had done um, the Q Space and Q Space Annex exhibition at, in, at the IMA, and uh, which documented a different independent space at, um, in Brisbane and I was looking for another gallery that I thought would serve to um, make a very interesting exhibition, and so I thought of Inhibitress. And, yeah, and so I suppose it, 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 then it raised all those interesting exhibitions about what happens when you um, bring something that was meant to be, or started out as being outside of the institution, what happens when you bring it back into the institution. Um, although the IMA itself was, wasn't a state gallery, it was a fairly sort of on the edge contemporary art space, a, you know, a, like ACCA, um, or an early version of ACCA. Um, and it was our, our role to be on the edge, and, but it was at the same time um, reaching out to if you like, historicise something that never saw itself as being something that would be historicised. And so I, I produced a, an exhibition. Um, it wasn't without its problems because it's not that easy to... Um, it was valiant in its endeavour and I think that it was in large part, you know, a really... Uh, worthwhile and successful exhibition, um, which was done in two parts because many of the works were so big um, that we had to, I had to divide it into two sequential parts um, in order to cover the works that were shown. I, I concentrated on the three main participants in it at Hibidra's Peter, um, Mike Parr and uh, Tim Johnson. But of all the works that I tried to recreate, uh, but The Fierce Blackman was definitely the hardest. 
um, because it was such a strange and eerie work. Um, and so what we did was we had all the hardware of the exhibition, the fan, the moving fan, the, the, the television with the static, the tape deck, you know, with all the uh, uh, great care taken to um, source the equipment from the era. Um, and, um, you know, everything was set up exactly as it was, except there was no performance. Um, but there was invitation for uh, participation from the audience. And so Peter, Peter, in the original version, of course, performed every half hour, but there were times when he wasn't there. And I, 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 so, so we were presenting it more or less as, as when he wasn't there-ish. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll talk about it in a moment when I, when I speak with Peter, but... Um, I don't exactly remember how the conversation went, but it wasn't on the cards that Peter wasn't really interested at the time in re-performing it. So that's something we might talk about. And it wasn't, um, we didn't consider getting a different performer in to redo it and re-perform -re it. Um, but that was the, the, the context of, of how we came to do the, the exhibition, and um, it, uh, yeah, I, perhaps I might actually move now into discussion with Peter, because I think that we're running a little bit short of time. We might as well use it in that way. Oh yeah, I mean, in in because in in the catalogue for the exhibition, I um, I did quite extensive interviews with each of the artists, and in it, I have a quote from you where you say that from a political point of view, that you thought that the work was intentionally ephemeral, and Im implicitly critical of the status of the art object subversive in, you know, in the fact of it being non-permanent, um, which made it, in a way, contradictory for me, of course, to then set it up as a... Well, again, I guess it wasn't a permanent installation, but I guess we were, to a certain extent, museumifying it by recreating it. I, I wonder if you feel the same way about it now. I can't say that I do. <laughs> uh, I would like to see But the Fierce Black Man in a collection where it's correctly uh, conserved and curated. Um, I think that uh, my declaration that you uh, quoted about it being an ephemeral work and that uh, I wasn't necessarily interested in its preservation, or however you wanted to describe it, um, was the folly of youth, really. I was 26 when I did it, I think. Uh, I've learned a lot since, but I, I think also um, I would not have had the expectation that it would have been taken as seriously at that time as it has become so. 
and uh, I think I could forgive myself for that rash statement initially. But, but I think also, uh, just to go back to the rashness, uh, there was an element of um, authenticity in my saying that, in that the, at the time, the status of the art object was under serious scrutiny and questioning. And it was seen to, should you accept the notion of the art object as having status and privilege, uh, that seemed to play into the hands of commercial forces. And a lot of the work that um, was shown in, for example, uh, when attitudes become form, was definitely anti-status and anti-commercial. However, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that a lot of that work has now found its way to international um, uh, museum collections and so on. So um, I guess that was the purpose of the snare work, <laughs> in some respects, to repudiate bourgeois values. Um, but certainly reputing, repudiating bourgeois values at that time was uh, of the essence of many artists' endeavours. Uh, just as, a, as an aside to the snare work, which unleashes a wall of sound unexpectedly, I just can't help think of it as a precursor to Marco Fusinato. To? Marco Fusinato, who, who works today making these very mm. loud... Um, s s he does a range of things, but some of his works are very unexpectedly shocking to the, to the viewer. Uh, or the, um, part, what you become a participant because you're surrounded by this wall of sound. It gave me an awful fright at one exhibition. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what the work was going to do and I was standing along, alongside it and suddenly uh, all hell broke loose and shocked me to the core. <laughs> um, Peter, if the, um, if the work itself were to be put into a collection, would you... Would you also like to see it being um, represented? And if it were to be reperformed by you or someone else, would would it have would it have to use like would the original? Um, I mean, what's or somebody else somewhere else could find? Can it be reinterpreted? Do you see that as a possibility? It's possible that it could be reinterpreted with your permission. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I would assume that my permission would be sought. <laughs> may not be. Um, well, I, I, I guess it can't forever be sought. No. But um, <laughs> there'll have to be a contract at some point. <laughs> but I mean, these are questions that people like Marina Abramovic are, yeah, sure. you know, thinking through, of course. And mm. it, it, it's it's a, it's a question of um, do we keep these things as you know, as it were, relics that are only objects to reside in a museum, or can mm. they live as um, as living artworks? Well, I think the best op the best chance they've got of living is um, to be in a museum. I think unless they're in a museum, uh, they'll have no life whatsoever. I can't see you know what anyone else would do with them necessarily. Uh, uh, with But the Fierce Black Man, I, uh, I would have no problem with other people doing the performance uh, aspect. The equipment would be um, accessible in one way or another, given a bit of searching. The only 
difficulty I would see is how do you get the taxi cab calls into the gallery space, given that taxi cabs no longer have radios and there's no longer conversations between taxi drivers and, their, um, and the people back at the, uh, at the base. Uh, so that, that would be a problem. I'm not too sure mm. how that could be achieved. I don't think it's insurmountable, but I think there's, um, the, there's something to think about there. But the rest, I think, is, is uh, possible to do. Might, and might, you might have a contemporary version of that. You know, it might not yeah. have to be locked into that. Yeah, um, there may be another way of doing it. Ambience um, yeah, of the it time. requires some thought. Mm. But um, on, on the question of, um, of uh, re-showing work from that period that, uh, you know, in one way or another was dematerialised or not necessarily coherent in the way that a painting or sculpture is, uh, I've often thought about... Um, one of the other works that I showed this evening, which is the Body Concert Part 2 Extended. And what I've thought about that is, and it wouldn't have quite the difficulty that, uh, or the issues wouldn't be quite as difficult as perhaps the rate taxi radio cab uh, uh, would be with But the Fierce Black Man. But I've often thought that it would be wonderful to get some dancers and some musicians and to do a group performance, different bodies, different shapes, so on, and make something of the sounds that come out of the two bodies um, embracing and um, holding the microphone and trying to move it around through their movements. With the bodies of, a da of dancers, I would think that you could get some very interesting um, visual images, and I think there would be sufficient there if there were a number of people doing it as couples. Um, the sound aspect could become something quite um, formidable as well, you know, mm -hmm, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, Peter, what can you tell us about the title of the work and, and the, the, not just the title but the repeated chant throughout the piece? I mean, I do think that, that it um, has a lot to do with the power of the piece, that, that this phrase... Uh, uh, has stayed with us somehow through the age, you know, through the decades. Certainly stayed with me. <laughs> uh, the story behind the phrase is this, that um, early in 1970 and um, being involved in David Ahern's AZ Music Group, there were weekly or monthly, I can't remember, uh, workshops where the various participants uh, were given certain tasks to perform uh, in an um, improvisation format. And so uh, you were thrust into a large space, as was the case with my coming across this uh, phrase, and uh, you had to make something of it. So it was a response to the environment, an oral response, rather than a visual one. And, uh, uh, we were in a disused building and I was wandering around looking at the floor to see if there was anything there that I could use and there was a piece of torn paper. And I had resolved in my mind that I would act on whatever it was that I picked up and saw. And I picked up this piece of paper, it must have been upside down. And uh, when I read it, it said, but the fierce black man. 
And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I think in the end I threw the piece of paper away. But it stayed with me for the rest of 1970, and when the opportunity arose to do the exhibition at Inhibitress in 1971, uh, that was my first port of call. Clearly, as I was attempting to demonstrate this evening, I was heavily under the influence of uh, Steve Reich and the other musicians who, like Terry Riley and Philip Glass and so on, who um, were working in that, uh, there was a term, minimalist way at the time. Uh, so uh, it was a case of putting a number of things together, which is why I use the word synthesis at some point. Um, uh, there were... A, a range of options, I guess, that were avail available to me. It was a question of how did I give it form, I think. Has that answered the question or have I missed the question entirely? Well, well no, I think it's interesting that it was um, entirely an, a, a, a factor of chance. Yeah, well, it was mm. Cajun. But well-chosen chance. <laughs> you, well, you, luck was on my side on that occasion, <laughs> I have to say. You could have ignored it, but have you, you it, picked yeah. up on it. And uh, it, it seems a very loaded title, in fact. And, uh, uh, but in, f in, in fact, it's not. Mm, it's, I don't think so. No. no, no. It's uh, it may come to be at one point or another <laughs> in the future. Um, mm. But I'm uh, completely comfortable with it. Mm. And... Uh, one of the reasons why I'm comfortable mm -hmm. with it is that I was acting on a particular principle, the principle being one of chance and randomness, which mm. was, you know, mm. again, I was talking about interference. Well, that was a, another material, in a sense, um, virtual material to work with. Mm. I wonder if we have any questions um, from the audience. No. Any quick questions, anybody? Oh. Hi, thanks, Peter. Um, just when you're talking about uh, the endless, how to make something endlessly present in the, um, about the fierce black man, and when you're talking about that, it just struck me that work like, uh, of works like Felix Gonzalez Torres, for example, with his endless, endless performances or performative nature of the work, um, and in all the work, there's always something performative from the way I've understood your work, and it, it does have a capitulation, recapitulation in some form or other. So I don't know whether there was a relation with that kind of work in the way you maybe might see it develop or transform. Hmm. Can you... I can't hear so well, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> could, could somebody just... Um... Stand up, sorry. Oh, even pre present it. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was really curious. About, oh, that's much better. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Um, I was just very curious about the performative nature of the work that you've always, that it has a capitulation or recapitulation. Oh, yeah. And it reminded me of Felix Gonzalez Torres with the endlessly present uh, nature of the work. And in perpetuity, his legacy is very much about that. And I was just very curious about whether that context um, it bears any relation for where you would, might think about it or where you do take uh, uh, some of the idea about your work and its own future. Well, I'm going to express my complete ignorance here. I've sort of lost touch with the visual arts uh, in recent times. And go, what was it, Gonzalez Torres? 
uh, is, is somebody I'm not aware of. So I really have no answer. But Sue, you look <laughs> as though you're more familiar. Perhaps you could uh, answer on my behalf. Um, I don't know how to answer that. He, um, I'm, it, it's about works that are, I, I'm more familiar with works by him than performances, really. And um, yeah, I guess it's not so much performance mm, so much as performative. Oh, the performative does, nature does, that they does, can be re, yeah. re, represented in a, a variety of, I think it's more to do with mm. the time and its nature yes. of repetition and time. And he deliberately, for example, his work, um, some examples of the work are about having a permanent display, always something can be taken away, but it's always replenished. I see. For example, like the papers yeah. yes, yes, or yes, lollies he might have in a corner. He has yes. a number of objects which yes. are always replenished in perpetuity. Yes, um, I see. Which is an interesting conversation about I see what you're saying. Where yes, those I understand. Yeah, I understand. Well, the artist, hmm. sorry, so the artist Robert Morris, and I mentioned him in the context of the TDR, the um, happenings issue. He was a contributor to that. He did exhibitions back in the 60s where the exhibition would constantly change. He would go in each day and either take something out or add something. So it, hmm. it's not a new idea. I think that, mm. that the, the transformative energy that goes into the difference um, in, in activating an exhibition in in uh, with Gonzalez Therese is is that it's the viewer who changes it, takes oh, the suite away. Oh. Mm. Mm. Whereas with uh, Robert Morris, it was, yeah, it was he him. would yeah, come yeah, in sure. and yeah. do it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting inflection. I mean, one one of the ideas that. Um, was important in, in, at Inhibitress was that the gallery was also like a studio. So... Um, it was, to some extent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that the it, it wasn't just a place where you would hang the work or something That's and right. then leave, but, mm -hmm. like, you would be there every mm -hmm. half an hour doing your thing. And, like, Mike would be there typing his... Uh, typed works and, you know, Tim would, you know, it was, it was a performative place. So um, it wasn't just a, uh, you know... An exhibition space. An exhibition yeah. space, yeah, and it was, it was like a total experience. Mm. So, mm. you know, maybe in a sense it's a precursor to those sorts of ongoing temporal um, things that you're pointing to uh, in his work, which is interesting to think about. Mm. Mm. Well, I have to say that um, one of the reasons why I don't pay a lot of attention to contemporary art these days is that when I do see it, it looks very much like what I saw 30, 40 or so years ago, only the production values are more heightened, I think. But, well, Peter, I mean, it is interesting that, you know, you did make this work, you know, engaging so... You know, pointedly with this very cutting edge um, music and experimental, uh, these experimental ideas, and then you did move away from it and did quite a different kind of work. Did you in some way lose faith in what you were doing? And, and why? Was it in fact that you felt there wasn't the audience participation? 
It wasn't. <laughs> um, uh, reflecting on um, the inhibitorous years uh, for the purpose of this um, evening, I uh, thought that um, the art world as it existed or was constituted back in 1970, 71, 72, was not at all interested in but the fierce black man. The only person from the Art Gallery of New South Wales who came to see it, and that was in the role of uh, a reviewer, I think the Sydney Daily Telegraph, was Daniel Thomas. No other curator from the Art Gallery of New South Wales came. Well, nothing has cha changed there. <laughs> <laughs> and I speak as a curator who the, the other sometimes thing, misses some very good things. The other thing I would say is that um, there is a problem if work is too original. I think that uh, there's a lack of take-up take for work that is unfamiliar or unexpected. And I think that going back to the 1970s, the neon work and the, uh, the other works that I have shown this evening that were shown at Inhibidress, there was no follow-on. All of this fell into a hole. And so one has to survive as an artist some, some way or another. And I guess I turned my attention to, um, back to painting and drawing and so on. It seemed to me that I had stepped so far outside of the uh, environment that uh, one would consider to be a potentially supportive one but you that were, I had to make my way back again. But you were also um, very, uh, you became very interested in uh, trade union and social issues. Mm, mm. So it it those, those things motivated you? Well, the, the reason, one of the reasons why that happened was due to the um, sacking of the Whitlam government in 1975. Mm. And a lot of people who were, uh, you know, vaguely interested in politics or perhaps completely apolitical felt galvanised into action of one sort or another. And so uh, that led into a range of um, political uh, oriented art activities that hadn't previously existed, or not, in, you know, not until um, not before, or after the uh, the first wave that preceded the Second World War, and so on, uh, where there were a number of political artists, well, for very good reason. Um, so it it needed a catastrophic political event, I think, to change artists and, you know, not just visual artists, but artists of all types, actors and musicians and so on, change their uh, orientation. Mm. So, I mean, I, I guess that's getting us away from the, um, but the fierce Blackman, but it, uh, if, if we take your trajectory and Mike's trajectory, which continued with performance and the more um, experimental edge, and you went into a more political, social, in a way, they both took the legacy of inhibitors, but in a different direction. Do we have another question? Uh, yes, good, uh, good evening. It's very nice to be here. Um, my name's Juliana, and uh, I'm a sound and performance artist from uh, Montreal, Canada. Uh, I've been here for four years now, and I just finished my PhD, actually, on uh, sound and performance, and a lot of the artists that you all have spoken about have actually been part of my research. Okay. 
what I find so interesting uh, living here in Melbourne is that a lot of the artists that um, I know in terms of the New York cartography of the 1970s, um, not many people know about them uh, or even speak about them anymore. And uh, it's really interesting for me to hear you actually um, sort of talk about a history that is so important and has contributed so much to uh, what we see in, as the social and political conditions yeah. of what are happening around us today. Um, and with that, uh, I also wanted to uh, thank you very much for um, also noting uh, a lot of the women artists that were excluded during that time and uh, uh, how much uh, you were also aware of those things that were going on. Um, and just, I think you've kind of answered my question actually, just uh, about what you're doing now. Uh, because I'm, as somebody who's coming from outside, I'm really curious about what was actually going on in Australia at the time, because you really didn't mention that. It seems that you've spoken a lot about your own practice, and I'm just wondering, was there a scene here? What was actually going on during the 70s? Because it seems that there's a, there was a calling for what was going on outside, what was happening in New York. How did you get connected to Lucy Lepard? Why is it that you were attracted to all the happenings of everything that was going on in New York at the time? And what kind of influence that gave you to your own surroundings here in Australia? Well, that's a very good question. I think what attracted me at that particular time, that's the mid to late 60s and the early 70s, was the newness of what I detected going on in New York. I mean, there were things going on in Europe as well, but then there was language difficulties, etc. cetera. Uh, England seemed a little uh, moribund, uh, really, but there were interesting things going on there as well, and I had some contact with English artists uh, at that time. But it was the Americans I, uh, who I thought had the energy and the, um, the innovative... Uh, uh, what would you call it, the, 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 the innovative intelligence, in a sense, to um, come up with, I think, a range of ideas that just were not canvassed at all or discussed at all in Australia. Australia was very isolated at that time, and the other important thing was that politically the country, a bit like now, or the way we might be going now, was politically moribund. There had been, I think, for 21 or 22 years, the same government, which was a Liberal, then country party government in Australia, which was highly conservative. And of course, as may prove to be the case in the future here, nothing much happened for a long period of time. So uh, the, the cultural environment, I think, was almost lifeless in a way. I mean, there were very fine painters and, you know, I still enjoy looking at painting and so on and there was some great sculpture, but in terms of full-blown avant-garde activity, um, there was no sign of it. And I felt that that produced, in my mind, a kind of a space for action. So that's why I moved into that area. I felt very confident that I could do interesting things there that nobody else had done before. I don't know, what, has that answered the question? Well, 
Peter, perhaps just one related question, which is um, early on you mentioned, you know, obviously interference and dissonance as being very important sort of motifs and mm. forms and materials. Mm. And but you did largely speak to art history and then the really fascinating influence of music. Mm. And you spoke also about sort of avant-gardism and the kind of, you know, being counter to bourgeois values. But to what extent do you think the dissonance or the interference that you were also kind of generating in your work might have also been represented or an expression against kind of, you know, institu anti-institutional values or against the Cold War or against the Vietnam War or against the kinds of institutional values that were predominant in politics more widely? Uh, are you suggesting, Max, that, um, that uh, because I dropped out of the art scene as it was constituted in a conservative sense, that... Um, and because of the work that I was producing, which were kind of critical of bourgeois values and what have you, that um, I was uh, my own worst enemy and basically shooting myself in the foot. Is that... No? <laughs> right. no, 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 I genuinely you know, am wondering to what extent a, a radical practice, which is dissonant and which involves interference, might reflect wider social movements, which were, say, anti-institutional, mm. such as, you know, anti-Vietnam, anti-war. The yeah. social activism. context oh, yeah. of... Activism, uh, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, the social context of, of making this anti-authoritarian work. Mm. Because the, the work was anti-authoritarian, yes, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was, mm. yeah. And uh, the, the spirit of that, those times was right. for That's people right. like, yeah. like so, you. So, Max, mm. are, you, are you suggesting that because I was doing this that um, I brought upon myself uh, my own <laughs> alienation? No, no. no. I'm, I'm, he, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm missing something here. <laughs> no, Max just wants to um, make a link between the art and the social, you oh, know, right. that, that yeah. to what extent were you motivated by, by a sense of, of the politics of the day? Would that sum it up? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And to mm. what extent was that a conscious decision? Mm. Because you spoke about certain um, art historical references mm -hmm. and lineages mm -hmm. and genealogies and musical references. But to what extent also were social contexts, such as you know, activism or social movements going on around you, Cold War, Vietnam War, mm. feminism, mm. other I kinds of they, things. They, they were part of it. Uh, yeah, I mean... I'm the, the, sure. The, the, one was I was very conscious of all of that, mm. and I was also very conscious that uh, many artists had engaged with that and somehow or other were able to incorporate those attitudes into their work. And uh, to some extent, I began to do that, probably in around about 1973. Uh, I had been in contact with a group called the Guerrilla Art Action Group in New York, um, who were instrumental in carrying out a number of quite political activities in New York and I guess in other places, but specifically in New York. And I showed their work at an exhibition that I organised at Inhibitress uh, in 1972 called Communications, of which there were 60 or 70 artists and um, a couple of them happened to be the, the guerrilla art action people. So I, I, that brought home to me um, various ways that I hadn't considered before uh, by which one could be politically active and still make art. That is, the political action became the artwork, in a sense. Mm. Um, so I was very open to that. But th there was this uh, huge amount of questioning going on about the, 
the validity of the art object, the status of the art object, and how it uh, fed into um, you know commercial impulses of one sort or another, and. Uh, you know, if you saw yourself as being radical and you certainly didn't align yourself with that mode of work, uh, you would look at alternatives. In the long run, I think that uh, I naively probably thought that uh, I, along with a lot of other people at the time, thought they could change the world. <laughs> it, was, um, uh, it seemed a reasonable expectation at that time. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just going to finish up. Can I say one thing, though? because I didn't say it earlier, because I cut my little piece a little bit short, but um, I just wanted to say that one of the really wonderful things about Inhibitress that I felt when I was researching it was that how much was achieved through artist-to-artist -artist, uh, communication between the Australian artists and the artists of the world. And so you were able to do these massively huge in terms of the numbers of artists you engage with, exhibitions like communications, uh, some of the exhibitions had like 55 people in them. Well, I think there were 60 in communications. Yeah, and so, and it was just artist to artist. There were no curators, no loan forms, no institutions, um, subverting the system and just um, having this wonderful sense of independence that you, you could achieve this and directly correspond with your international peers and, and, and that you were part of an international movement that yes, was happening true. in true. Australia yeah. as, as well as in the rest of the world. So it was a very, it was very utopian and exciting. Oh, it was. It was. I wasn't there, but this is, <laughs> this is how I've um, really, um, how I've found it to, to read about and know about. Very inspiring. So perhaps um, we need to end up now. Yes. We're getting the word. So uh, many, many thanks to Peter. Well, thank you. So. For, yeah. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.